0: I want to join with bob in welcoming everyone here and expressing again my appreciation for this uh, wonderful opportunity to be working with you this week i've just enjoyed it so much the time that i've had to get better acquainted with uh, the members here has been a, a tremendous encouragement to me I can't say enough about it we began our studies on sunday with a question uh, i ask a question of you to consider uh within yourself and Uh, not to answer out loud but uh, to consider that question as we went through our study and i want to do the same this evening oh it's not i thought we started that i think he put it on the desktop okay but we never started it you see it let me see if i can minimize that that's not you that's chris emerson yeah I'm not sure where you put the file. Here, comes here he far, comes. Right? We've got help. Yeah. Sing another song. Yeah. <laughs> it's loaded. We just didn't start it, I think. Uh, I'm saying we. That's the royal we here. <laughs> uh, I know it's up there. Takes three of us to run this, right? You got him mm-hmm. on Okay. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, brother. I want to start this evening with a question, as we did on Sunday, and the question I want to ask you is a very simple question, and that question is, have you been saved? I don't think that there's a more important question that we can consider this entire week than the salvation of the soul, our eternal redemption. And I would expect that there's a large number of folks here that would say, yes, Brett, I have been saved, and that's wonderful. I don't know, maybe you're sitting there uh, thinking to yourself, I I don't guess that I have been. And if that's the case, you're in the right place. We're going to be talking about the most important thing that you could ever consider. But if you would answer that question, yes, I have been saved, I I want to request something of you. And that is that you would make some mental note or maybe write down in your notes, what did you do in order to be saved? What did you do in order to be saved? I'd like for you to just make a few notes of that. Maybe you would say, "Well, Brett, I my parents told me when I was a little infant that they they had me uh, uh, they took me up to a, a service and and the priest sprinkled water on me." Or, or maybe you would say, uh, uh, as as a young person, you were at a, a revival uh, at uh, some particular denomination and the uh, the preacher told everyone to uh, that needed to be saved to come forward and and to pray the sinner's prayer and accept Jesus into their heart as your personal Savior, and maybe that's what you did. And if that's the case, I'd like for you to write that down. At at what point, what did you do, and and at what point in that did you know that you were saved? What did you do in order to be saved? And, And the reason I want to ask that question, and I'd like for you to make a note of that, is because we're actually going to examine the question, and sometimes, as we pointed out this past Lord's Day, sometimes we need a little help being honest with ourselves. And, and so we're going to be looking through the Scriptures to see what the Scriptures say about this subject. And sometimes it's easy, as you're going through that, to say, oh, well, yeah, now, now that's what I did. I'd like for you to commit. I'd, I'd like for you to just, just make a note of what you know that you did in order to be saved, and we're going to compare that with the Scriptures this evening. Whatever it was that you did, I'm sure that you called on the name of the Lord, right? In Romans chapter 10, the Bible tells us in verse 13, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now without calling on the name of the Lord, there's no salvation, so surely you called on the name of the Lord, and and I'd be interested in knowing just how exactly did you do that? Because that is what we're going to examine specifically this evening. What exactly is involved in calling on the name of the Lord? In my first year of preaching out in the Texas Panhandle, there was a family there. Their oldest son was in high school, and he brought me a tract one, one day, and he said, he said, Brett, I'd like for you to look at this. That uh, Some of my friends were handing these out at school, and, and I'd like to get your input on it. The track was entitled, Do You Know For Sure That You're Going to Be With God in Heaven? Poignant question, very important. And as you flip through this little tract, It talks about the fact that that we need to be sure. And and the first question is, why would God let me into heaven? And it talks about the good news of the gospel. It talks about the fact that, uh, that we're all sinners and that we can't save ourselves. There's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves without God being involved to save ourselves, and that Jesus Christ is the answer to the dilemma that God had of being just and punishing us, but being merciful and loving us. And, and, and very scriptural throughout this, talking about the fact that Jesus died, and the necessity of faith, and not just a, a mental acknowledgement of the existence of God, uh, but, but more than that. It also talks about uh, uh, the need to uh, receive the gift of eternal life. And this is where the tract began to uh, divert a little bit uh, from what I read in the Bible. And I, I just want to read a, a section of this. It, it says, would you like to receive the gift of eternal life? Because this is such an important matter, let's clarify what this involves. It means that you receive Jesus Christ into your life as Lord. And it means finally that you repent of your sins, that you're willing to turn from anything that you've been doing. And then on the next page it says you can go to God in prayer right where you are. You can receive His gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ right now. And then it quotes Romans 10 and verse 10, with the heart one believes into righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made into salvation. And then verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the tract is saying that the way that you call on the name of the Lord in order to be saved is by going to God in prayer. And it says if you want to receive the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, then call on Him asking for this gift now. Here's a suggested prayer. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and do not deserve eternal life, but I believe you died and rose from the grave to purchase a place in heaven for me. Lord Jesus, come into my life, take control of my life, forgive my sins and save me. I repent of my sins and now place my trust in you for my salvation. I accept the free gift of eternal life. The tract says, if this prayer is the sincere desire of your heart, look at what Jesus promises to those who believe in him. And John 6, 47 is quoted most assuredly, i say to you he who believes in me has everlasting life and the next page says welcome to god's family it speaks about uh that welcome being forever the once saved always saved concept and more could be said about that but we don't have time tonight what i want the reason i read this track and i, I realize some say well, why are you reading someone else's track well first of all because i want to make sure that i am accurately dealing with what the most prominent concept is concerning calling on the name of the Lord. I'm not building a straw man here, I'm, I'm reading from their material. And, and someone might think, well, Brent, that's kind of rude to read their tract here in this meeting. I don't think so at all. You know, the, the Lord tells me to do unto others as I would have them do unto me, essentially. And I could only pray that every denominational preacher in the Birmingham area would take every one of my charts this week and present them to their congregation. Even if they said, I completely disagree with Brett Hoagland, if they would share my chart, share the tracks that you might have here with their congregation, wouldn't that be wonderful? And, and they passed this out. They wanted you to see it. They wanted you to read it. I've read it within context. And there's a lot of it that I agree with, but I don't agree with that part, that calling on the name of the Lord is done through prayer. But that is the most common belief among those that consider themselves to be Christians, that we call on the name of the Lord in order to be saved by praying to Him. And I bet you've heard that at some point. Maybe that's what you wrote down that you did. I want to examine that tonight. You know, the truth has nothing to fear. And and I'm happy to examine what I did with you. I want to know if what I did is not in harmony with the book of God. But we need to know. We must call on the name of the Lord in order to be saved. But have we in fact done that? The first thing that we need to do is look at a few of the scriptures that are commonly used as proof texts for the sinner's prayer, as it's often called. And one of the first ones that we would go to would be in Luke chapter 18. You want to turn over there with me? In Luke chapter 18 we're actually going to begin back at verse 9. Verse 13 is the key verse that is referenced, but we're going to start back at verse 9. Jesus said in Luke 18 in verse 9 uh, or, or the uh, the record Luke writes, also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Verse 14, Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, a lot of folks will look at that passage and say, Well, there it is, Brett. Here's an occasion where a man prays to God, and Jesus said, He went down to his house justified. So that must be how we call on the name of the Lord, right? Well, no, that is not right. Let me tell you why. First of all, look back in verse 9. In verse 9, what was Jesus teaching here? Was Jesus teaching everything that a person must do in order to be saved? No, verse 9 says that he was teaching a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Now, what that means is, they weren't trusting in God to make them righteous. They were trusting in themselves to make themselves righteous. And they looked down on other people. So both of these are dealt with in this particular parable. And primarily the point of the parable is the recognition of one's need of forgiveness. This Pharisee did not believe that he needed forgiveness. That's why he said to God, I'm glad I'm not like this man. I'm glad I'm not like most men. I do all of these things. And he believed that he was redeemed, that he was saved as a result of all the things that he did. He did not understand his desperate need of forgiveness. That's why Jesus taught this parable. The parable, it does not say in verse 9, Now Jesus taught this parable to some who needed to know how an alien sinner is saved. That's not the point of the parable. It is simply to teach the need of forgiveness. But I want you to notice something else. This is not even an an example of an alien sinner being redeemed. Because the man he's talking about entered into a covenant relationship with God at eight days old when he was circumcised. For a person who's already in a covenant relationship with Christ, 1 John chapter 1 says in verses 7 through 9, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins we're not asking what a Christian needs to do to be forgiven when they sin we're asking what does a person who's not a Christian need to do a person who's never been saved that that's the subject of our query so this is dealing with a person already in a covenant relationship with God who sinned and needed to be forgiven this is not parallel with what we're looking at and furthermore we don't even have the totality of his obedience recorded you know the law Which this man was under the law stated in Leviticus chapter 4 in verses 27 through 28 that when a man sinned he had to bring a sacrifice verse 35 and it was only after that sacrifice was offered that he was forgiven now this this man was forgiven he went down to his house justified but I'm going to tell you he offered a sacrifice if there was sin that needed to be forgiven Jesus didn't give us all those details because that wasn't the point of the parable the point of the parable was to emphasize the need of forgiveness. And not only that, we're not even under the same law as this man. This man was under the law of Moses. Colossians 2 and verse 14 says that Jesus took that law out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. We're under the law of Christ. This is not an example. We learn from it. The things that were written before were written for our learning, no doubt. We learn from it, but it does not authorize what we do to be saved. It was a completely different covenant, a different law. But not only Luke, Chapter 18. Someone says, "Well, okay, maybe Luke 18 doesn't teach that, but I'll tell you what does. John chapter 1 does in verse 12. John chapter 1 and verse 12 talks about the fact that we've got to accept Jesus into our heart as our personal Savior, and that's where I would go. Well, okay, let, let's look at that. We need to take in the context. So we're going to read John chapter 1 verses 11 through 13. Let's look at that. John chapter 1 verse 11." John said, he came to his own, speaking about Jesus, going to the Jews. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. See that? Now we're, we're talking about uh, at least something that, that sounds right here. His own did not receive him. Verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, someone might say, well, there it is, Brett. We've got to receive Him. We've got to accept Him into our heart as our personal Savior. And that's what the tract said. Well, I know that's what the tract said. Is that what John 1 11 through 13 is saying? Let's look at this text. I want to ask you a question How do we receive Him? That's what this is talking about, isn't it? How do we receive Him? Now, A lot of my friends, a lot of the people that you know and work with, maybe you yourself, would say, well, we receive Him by accepting Him into our heart as our personal Savior. Let's see that in the text, okay? How do we receive Him? In verse 11, He said, or in verse 12, He said, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, okay? So those who receive Him, He gives them the right to become children of God. But but notice... In verse 12, to those who believe in his name. Now notice, as many as received him to them, that is those who received him, to them he gave right to, uh, uh, to become children of God, to those, those who? Those who received him. Who are those who received Him? He said it's those who believe in His name and who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, just to condense that, those who receive Him, who are given the right to become children of God, who are they? They are those who believe and who are born of God. I still don't see anything about accepting Jesus into our heart as our personal Savior. But let's explore this a little bit further. What exactly does it mean to believe in His name and to be born of God? I don't think we need to spend any time on what it means to believe in His name. I'm pretty sure that we would all be on the same page, that believing in His name is is to have faith. And there's there's no quibble there. We all agree that we must have faith in order to become children of God, and that's, that's part of what we do to receive Him. But there's another part, and that is to be born of God. What does that mean? You know, all we've got to do is turn in our Bibles over to chapter 3, just a couple of chapters over, John chapter 3, and we're going to see what it means to be born of God. And what I'm going to suggest to you is that being born of God is equivalent to being born again. And I I would expect no one's going to argue with that. We're reading about being born of God in John 1, and in John 3 we're going to read about being born again. So in John chapter 3, Jesus says there, in verse 3, as Nicodemus came to him by night and uh, was speaking to him uh, with with these questions, and Jesus said in verse 3, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, verse 3, born again. Verse 5, born of water and the Spirit. Two things equal to the same thing are equal to one another. I told you I didn't like math, but that's one thing that I know is true. Two things equal to the same thing are equal to one another. Being born again is necessary, you must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God, and unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. These are equivalent. The way that we're born again or born of God, John 1 in verse 13, is to be born of water and of the Spirit. What does that mean? How are we born of water and the Spirit? Let's start with the last one first, okay? How are we born of the Spirit? Turn with me to James chapter 1 and verse 18. In the book of James, I want you to notice there in chapter 1 what the Scripture says there. James writes in James chapter 1 and in verse 18 that we have... He says in verse 18, of His own will, speaking of God's will, of His own will He brought us forth by the Word of Truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. You see that phrase, He brought us forth? In the King James Version, it's translated, of His own will begat He us. So that, that phrase, brought us forth, is a phrase that's translated in other places, begat. The begattle process is the birth process. Jesus, was born of a woman, but he was begotten of the Holy Spirit. Begotten is what the father does in the birth process. I was begotten of Tom Hoagland. I was brought forth or born of my mother, Glenita Hoagland. They both had a role in that, a a father and a mother. But the father's role in that begotten process is that seed of life. That's a part of birth. That's a part of being born. And so Jesus is saying that we have to be born of water and of the Spirit. What's the Spirit's role? Well, I know that the Spirit revealed the word of truth. The Ephesians 6 and uh, verse 17, that the word of God is the sword of the Spirit. And here he says that we were begotten by God. Born, remember born of God in John 1 and verse 13? We were begotten by God. By the word of truth. Now, compare that. Let's look at another passage. Look over in 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter in chapter 1, notice there in verse 22. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 22 down through verse 23. He says, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. Truth is involved in our souls being purified. He said, through the Spirit, now he connects the Spirit with the truth, right? He says, you purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. The truth came through the Spirit. It is that truth that we obeyed, but notice what he adds to it. He says in verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. See how he connects that spiritual birth that being born again jesus said you must be born again and peter by inspiration of the holy spirit used the words that jesus gave to the holy spirit and called this being born again and he said that you've been born again not of corruptible seed but incorruptible seed through the word of god we're born again through the word of god that's not water that's not water What is that? Well, as I said in Ephesians 6 and verse 17, the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. It's the instrument by which the Holy Spirit works. If I'm going to be born of the Spirit, born again, then it's going to be by means of the revelation that He brought the Word of God. And furthermore, remember in Luke chapter 8 and verse 11 in the parable of the sower? He said the parable is this, the seed of the kingdom is the word of God, and right here in First Peter he said, "We're born not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible." Now my fleshly birth was of corruptible seed. This flesh, this body, it's 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 wearing away, it's perishing, it's going to die. But there is another birth by means of an incorruptible seed, and Peter says by inspiration it is this the Word of God by which we are born. And the Word of God is the instrument of the Spirit by which He works in our lives. To be born of water and of the Spirit, to be born of the Spirit, is to be born or begotten through the Word of God. Look, when the Word of God is preached, and in an honest heart, it is received, it is taken in. Think about the parable of the sower. It's not hard ground, it's receiving that truth thinking on it, considering it, comparing it, convicted by it, and that word of truth that tells that one that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and tells that person, that that truth, tells that person that all are going to give an answer to God and that all must repent and that he who believes and is baptized shall be saved and through the conviction of the word, that person is moved to obey that truth obey the gospel, Romans chapter 10 and verse 16, to obey the gospel. That's how the seed of life germinates and brings about that new birth. But what is being born of water? Being born of the Spirit, certainly the seed of spiritual life, we know what that is. It is the Word of God. But what is it to be born of water? Well, you can look high and low in your New Testament, and the only water you're going to read about associated in any way with our salvation our Sonship uh, 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 to with with Almighty God is water baptism look with me in Acts chapter 10 in Acts chapter 10 when Peter was in the household of Cornelius Acts chapter 10 and in verse 47 I want you to notice there Peter says can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Baptism in the name of the Lord is not Holy Ghost baptism. It's not the baptism of suffering. It's not baptism in, in any other form of immersion. It is water baptism. And Peter said, who can forbid water that these should not be baptized? There's the water born of water and the Spirit. Somebody says, oh, no, Brad, that, that water there is, is physical birth here in John chapter 3. Jesus is talking about, you know, when a person's born and, and the water breaks. Well, first of all, that, that's not water. That's, that's a bodily fluid. I, I know that it's composed, a great deal of it's composed of water, but you know, what is it? Eighty-something percent of our body's composed of water, but I don't think we're going to walk around calling each other water. The fact that there's a constituent element of our body that's water, that's not H2O necessarily in its form. And neither is amniotic fluid. But but still, without quibbling over that, what I want you to realize is Jesus said, unless, He said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And verse 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Isn't that a little bit nonsensical? Unless one is born physically, he cannot enter the kingdom of... God. Why would you even need to say that? Why, why would he need to say, unless one is born physically and born spiritually, he can't enter the kingdom of God? But what would be the point of that? So he is talking about two things that are absolutely necessary to be born what? again. Born again. Somebody says, well, he's talking about, in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Yes, because Nicodemus introduced being, re-entering his mother's womb a second time. And Jesus is saying, this is not a fleshly birth, it's a spiritual birth. But I want to tell you that spiritual birth involves water. H2O. Not bodily fluid, but water. Let me show you another passage. Notice with me Not only in Acts chapter 10 and verse 47, water baptism in His name, but notice how Romans 6 and verse 4 connects water baptism, baptism in the name of the Lord, with newness of life. In Romans chapter 6, uh, the Apostle Paul writes there in verse 4, he said, Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life he's saying that when we rise up out of baptism we walk in newness of life verse 5 if we've been united together in the likeness of his death certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection coming up out of the watery grave of baptism is a resurrection and it's that is where newness of life begins not at the point of faith you ever thought about that Denominations out here that tell you, well, you must believe and you're saved at the point of faith, and you need to be baptized too. Well, if that baptism is a burial, and you are made alive at the point of faith, you're you're burying a a living person. I'm pretty sure that's illegal in Alabama. Bury somebody alive. You know that doesn't even fit what the Lord is saying here. He says that we're dead in sin. We're buried like Jesus was buried when he was dead, not alive. Jesus was dead when he was buried, and he was raised up to walk in newness of life, right? And he says that we're raised up in the likeness of Jesus. That means we weren't made alive before we were buried. That wouldn't be in the likeness of Jesus. So what we're seeing here is, even this passage, newness of life, now I've got a grandbaby on the way. There's going to be newness of life in September, and I'll be telling you about it, trust me. And, and when that ha- I I know when that happens. I've had three kids born. And that newness of life is everything to do with birth. And it's connected with baptism here. I want you to notice another passage. Turn over to Galatians chapter three. Galatians chapter three and verse 26 through 27. In Galatians 3, in, in, in verse 26, he says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Well, that's what I'm looking for. Because, you know, going back to our text, I hope you haven't forgot where we started in John chapter 1, he, he talked about the fact that those who receive him, he, to them he gave right to become children of God. Galatians 3 is all about that. How do we become sons or children of God? How does that happen? He said, Well, you are all sons of God through faith. But look at the next verse. For, verse 27. For, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You see the word for there? That's not the Greek word ace. It doesn't mean into. It's the Greek word gar. And it means because. He says you are all sons of God through faith because. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Look at it. You are something because you were something. You are sons of God because you were baptized into Christ. And having done that, you put on Christ. Now, I'm, I'm not by any means an English teacher, but if there's one here, I'm pretty sure that they would concur. Just by the force of language, if it is true that you are something because you were something, then it is just as true that you are not something if you were not something. In other words, if you are sons of God through faith because you were baptized into Christ, then you are not sons of God through faith if you were not baptized into Christ. I'm going to tell you, friend, there's no wiggle room with that one. There is no way around it. That is a fact of Scripture. And what he's, what he's doing is he's connecting that birth. That's how I became a, a son of Tom and to Hoagland. And we become a son of God by being born of God, by being born again. And he connects baptism, water baptism to it here again. My friend, when we look at what it means to be born a God, born of God and to be born again, What we're noticing is that we must believe in His name and we must be baptized into His name. Those who received Him are those who believe in His name and are born of God, baptized, born of water and of the Spirit. They're baptized. You know, that's exactly what Mark 16 verse 16 says. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Perfect harmony in the Word of God. No, these verses do not teach the idea of the sinner's prayer. And so when we look at Romans 10 and verse 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, what does it really mean to call on the name of the Lord? We don't find the sinner's prayer in the New Testament. You won't find it there. Accepting Jesus into your heart as your personal Savior, you're not going to find that in the New Testament. What does it really mean? You know, in in the book of Psalms, in the 145th Psalm, and in verse 18, I want you to notice this admonition. The Lord said in the 145th Psalm in verse 18, The Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. You know what that implies? That there are false ways to call upon the Lord. And there are a lot of people doing that today. You're not near to the Lord simply by calling on Him in your own way. The Lord is near to all who call upon Him in truth. I want to know, how do I call upon the Lord in truth? I, I know there's a lot of different ways that people say to call on the Lord, but the only way to know how to call upon the Lord in truth is to look at what the Bible says. When we find that phrase, whoever calls on the name of the Lord should be saved, that, those two words, call on or call upon, is a translation of the Greek word epikaleo. That word means to call upon, to invoke, to call upon for one's self on one's behalf, or anyone as a helper. For instance, to appeal to one, or to make an appeal unto. You know, in the book of Acts, in chapter 25, this word epikaleo is used at least five times, and in every one of these cases, Paul is saying that he had appealed to Caesar. And it's stated that way again and again. Well, you've appealed to Caesar. I appealed to Caesar. And every time it's the Greek word epikaleo. It, it's not translated call upon, it's translated appeal. So I want us to begin by understanding that the word call upon means to appeal to. And, and I think the problem is that many people assume when they hear call upon, they think verbal. You know, call, hey, you know, it, it's got to be something we say. Therefore, they immediately think about a prayer well first of all the word doesn't mean necessarily verbal speech it means simply to appeal to and you can appeal in a number of different ways we're going to be looking at that and so it means to appeal to it means to invoke or appeal to god's authority call upon the name of the lord the name of the lord is his authority it is to appeal to god's authority seeking his blessings namely the forgiveness of sins now the obvious question that follows is but How do we appeal to God for forgiveness? Let's start by looking at a parallel of scriptures. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10 that whoever calls on the name of the Lord should be saved. Look at that passage. Turn over there with me again and notice. He says in verse 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now let's look at a parallel. We're gonna look at this passage, we're gonna look at another one. In Romans 10 and verses 13 through 15, Paul starts out and with being saved, and he starts reasoning in reverse. So we're going to have to follow him because he's kind of going in reverse here. Paul said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then he says, but how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So, if we were to take that in forward, there has to be a preacher uh, uh, through which people hear the gospel and believe it, and as a result of that, call on the name of the Lord, and as a result of that, they're saved. Now, let's look at a parallel that says exactly the same thing. Now, not in Acts chapter 2. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 16 with me, if you will. In Mark chapter 16, I want you to begin reading there with me in verse 15. In Mark chapter 16, we're going to begin reading in verse 15 and read through verse 16. Jesus said in Mark 16, beginning in verse 15, He said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved now i want you to note something that phrase shall be saved in mark 16 and 16 is the same phrase word for word iota for iota in the greek as it is in romans 10 and verse 13. you've got every element here and there's one element that in one place is phrased calling on the name of the Lord, and in the other parallel passage, what's it called? Baptism. Calling on the name of the Lord and baptism are equivalent. Remember, two things equal to the same thing are equal to one another. Calling on the name of the Lord is baptism. That's what we're saying. We're... I'm not, I'm not reading from some creed book. We're opening our Bibles, and we're letting simply the Scriptures interpret themselves. We're looking from one Scripture to another Scripture. We're finding perfect harmony here. There's the parallel. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. It's not, not only that, though, let's look at Paul's conversion. Turn with me to Acts chapter 9, and let's notice again what it means to call on the name of the Lord. In Acts chapter 9, you'll notice that Paul was on the road to Damascus, and the Bible tells us that he was blinded by a light from heaven in verse 3. And then in verse 4, he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The Lord spoke directly to Saul at that point. And then in verse 5, Saul spoke to the Lord. He said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? I want you to notice not only that, but in verse 9, the Bible says he was three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. He fasted and would not eat for three days. I think that that's evidence of his repentance, his godly sorrow. He couldn't even eat. For three days, and, and and not only that, but look in verse eleven. When the Lord speaks to Ananias, He tells him to inquire at the house of Judas, the uh, uh, at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, what's Saul doing? He's praying for three days. He's not eating. He's repented. So here's a man who has seen a vision, a bright light from heaven. The Lord spoke directly to him. He spoke directly to the Lord, had an exchange with him. He's repented of his sins, and he's prayed to God. And you just go and ask your preacher. Just give him a hypothetical. Don't tell him it's Saul, not, not to begin with. Just say, you know, I know this person that, you know, they had, they had this, uh, this crazy experience, and they, they saw this vision. The Lord spoke to them. And they knew it was the Lord, and they spoke to the Lord, and the Lord spoke back, and and this person repented of their sins and prayed to God. I'm just wondering, would you say that person, I mean, clearly this person believed in the Lord because he called Jesus Lord, so the belief was there, the repentance was there, he prayed to God, would you say that he saved? See what your preacher says about that. To be consistent, nearly every denominational preacher in this county in this metro area, in this state, is going to tell you that person was saved. You know what the Bible says? He was not saved. Because in verse 6, Saul said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And Jesus said, go into the city, and it will be told, there, told you there what you must do. Saul hadn't been told anything at the point that he had done all of these things. He had not yet done what he must do. He wasn't saved. Well, what did he do? Well, we've got to go to Paul's account in Acts 22 to get, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. And in Acts chapter 22, Paul tells us that when Ananias came into him, remember, Ananias was going to tell him what he must do in order to be saved. Ananias came into him, and in verse 16, he said, And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, comma, calling on the name of the Lord. Wow. There it is right there. Calling on the name of the Lord is being baptized. He said, well, wait, wait, how can baptism be calling on the name of the Lord? Because we saw that the word epikaleo means to appeal to and our obedience in baptism is an appeal to the authority of God for the forgiveness of sins. That's exactly what it is. He says, arise and be baptized, washing away your sins. They weren't taken away prior to baptism. Be baptized, calling on the name of the Lord. In baptism, you're calling on the name of the Lord. There's no way around that. Let's notice another passage. Look back in Acts chapter two. In Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, you remember when Peter stood up to preach the gospel? In verse 21, Peter revealed God's promise in verse 21 that whoever calls on the name of the Lord should be saved. He was quoting from Joel the prophet. And then in verse 22, he begins to reveal to them who the Lord is that they must call upon. And he told them, it's Jesus that you crucified told them that several times. Well, the hearers expressed their faith in verse 37. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, "Men, brethren, what shall we do?" I want you to notice what Peter told them. Let's start with what Peter didn't tell them. Peter didn't tell them to accept Jesus into their heart. Look at verse 38. And you can look at verse 39 and 40 and 41 and all the way through the end of the chapter. Peter never told them to accept Jesus into their heart as their personal Savior. You know what else Peter didn't tell them to do? He didn't tell them to pray for salvation, not once. Never in the Bible was someone told to do that, ever. And Peter had just told them in verse 21, whoever calls on the name of the Lord should be saved. Then he tells them who the Lord is. And in verse 37 they said, men, brethren, what shall we do? Do for what? What were they asking? Peter had just told them that whoever calls on the name of the Lord should be saved. Then he told them, "And you murdered the Lord. And their question is, how do we call on Him? That's what they're asking in verse 37. They're not asking what they need to do to get a, a graduate degree or to become a firefighter. What shall we do? I know what they're asking, and you do too. What do we do to call on the Lord that we murdered? Peter answered them in verse 38. And he told them to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ in order to have the remission of sins. Remember the promise in verse 21, whoever calls on the name of the Lord should be saved. What did Peter tell them to do to be saved? Repent and be baptized. That's because they were already at the point of faith. Over and over again, we're seeing this element brought out. But then finally, there's one more. I want you to turn with me. To 1 Peter 3 in verse 21. It is conclusively, clearly revealed what it means to call on the name of the Lord in 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 21. Peter is, is writing there about in verse 20 how eight souls were saved by water in the ark in the days of Noah. And so he says then in verse 21, 1 Peter chapter 3. He says in verse 21, There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice how he connects baptism with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If there's no resurrection, baptism is meaningless. It's because Jesus was raised that our resurrection means anything because it is obedience to the good news of the gospel that Jesus died, was buried, and raised alive. And our response to that, our obedience to that, is in believing, being buried, dying to this world, being buried, and being raised together with Him. That's the whole point. But here's an interesting thing in 1 Peter 3.21. First of all, He says that there is an antitype baptism that word antitype is uh, there's type and there's antitype type is a figure you know in hebrews chapter 10 we read about types and shadows in the old testament and and the point of that is like you know when i was a kid my dad had the old school typewriter and and i i was mesmerized by how that thing worked mechanically and i'd i'd get around behind it and punch the key and i'd i'd see that key come up and the letter was backwards on that thing you know, but the image that it struck, the antitype, was the real image. That's what we were looking for. And that's what he's using here. The type was eight souls saved through water in the days of Noah. The antitype is the fact that baptism doth also now save us. But then there's a parenthetical statement. And he's explaining how water baptism saves us. And he's telling us it's not... Simply the water. It's not the removal of the filth of the flesh. This is not just a ceremonial bath. He says, it's the answer of a good conscience toward God. But answer? Have you ever thought... Answer. What, what is that? Well, that's where we need a little bit of help. And I would say I use the New King James Version. It's a very reliable and accurate translation, as is the King James. But unfortunately, this is one of the, of, of the most unfortunate translations for our vernacular. The word aperotema means, actually, Vine says, it was used by the Greeks in a legal sense as a demand or appeal. It is a demand or an appeal. Baptism is therefore the ground of an appeal by a good conscience against wrongdoing. Now, let me defend the King James Version in using the word answer. In the 1600s, when the King James Version was translated, the word answer was used in that way. To to make one's defense in court and to make an appeal to the judge was called an answer. And so that's why it's translated that way, but we don't use it that way anymore. We don't don't use that, but you know, the New American Standard Version, I believe, translates it appeal here. If you're using one, you might notice that. But that's exactly what this word means, the word uh, uh, translated answer. It means an appeal. What was it that epikaleo means, to call on the name of the Lord? It means... To appeal to the authority of God and what did the Holy Spirit what did Jesus by means of the Holy Spirit to the Apostles and what they wrote down what did Jesus say that baptism in fact is it's not the removal of the filth of the flesh he said it is the appeal toward God or unto God for a clear conscience for the forgiveness of sins baptism is an appeal or calling on toward the authority of God for the forgiveness or the remission of sins. I, I, I still realize a lot of times people say, "Well, Brad, you know, I mean, I see that. I, I, I see how these verses are all saying the same thing, but it's hard for me to understand how an appeal is not made verbally. How how this obedience in baptism is an appeal. Well, the only way that I know how to illustrate it is 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 to give you a, an example in my own life because this makes sense to me. When I was a young boy, uh, we, we were at church one Sunday evening, and, and the preacher's son came up to me, and, and he was kind of an ornery, ornery kid. And I'm not saying all preacher's kids are ornery by any means, you know, but he was. And he was older than me, and he said, Hey, Brett, you want to see something really neat? And I said, Yeah, sure. He said, Come with me. You know, when, when, a, when an older kid looks around like that, You're getting ready to do something really cool, you know. He don't want anyone to know where you're going. And he took me in that room around behind the baptistry where they prepared the Lord's Supper. And he he pulled those trays down and he opened them up and he said, You want a bite of that bread? Oh, I'd always wanted a bite of that bread. And my parents would pass it around me every time. And I think, Why don't I get to eat that bread? And so I said, Yeah, sure. Now to give you some context I don't know how long we had been at church we lived well out into the country it was a long drive to church and when it was time to go all of us kids knew it was our responsibility to just keep an eye on my dad and when he started making his way toward the car he better not have to wait on you you'd better be out there in the car ready to go because we had a long drive ahead I lost track of time I don't know what all we did and where all we went but my dad had gone to the car and waited came back in, looked in every classroom, looked in the bathrooms, and the last room he looked in was that room, and as he opened the door, I had the crumbs falling down my chin. Well, as you can imagine, he grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and walked me out to the car, and in that low voice said, I'm going to wear you out when we get home. Oh, that was the longest drive. And I sat in that car as obedient and sweet, and I I was sweet to my little sister, I didn't argue with her. I gave her whatever she wanted. I jumped out and opened the car door for my mom. I was the most obedient kid you've ever seen. Because with my dad, talking was not the way to appeal. It gets you in deeper. The way to appeal to my dad's grace was through humble obedience. Don't say a word. Obey. Submit. Friends, that's the way that we appeal to God. I'm not saying that there, uh, that there is no sense in which we appeal to God through prayer. There is. But that is not how we appeal to God for the remission of sins as an alien sinner. That's my point. Yes, there are a number of different ways that we appeal to God and I realize that one of the ways to do that is verbal but not for the forgiveness of sins. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. And baptism is an act of appeal to God for the remission of sins. Now, I ask you, what did you do in order to be saved? Remember that at the beginning? What did you write down? Now, you might have written down that maybe you accepted Jesus into your heart as your personal Savior and, and you prayed to God for Christ's sake to forgive you of your sin. Is that what you wrote down? And I'm not, I'm not putting you down. I'm not trying to embarrass you. It's, that's between you and the Lord right now. But I'm just challenging you. Because if that's what you wrote down, I know you're probably thinking, yeah, that's true, but it's okay because I've been baptized. Well, hold on. Hold on. Maybe, Maybe you were immersed in water. But let me point this out. If you prayed the sinner's prayer in order to be saved or accepted Jesus into your heart in order to be saved, and if you believe that you were saved after believing and praying, which is what the majority of those out here in the world that call themselves Christians believe, that they were saved at the point of believing and praying, then let's notice what the Bible says about that. The Bible says that if that's what you did, you were not calling on the name of the Lord for forgiveness when you were baptized. You couldn't have been because you believe that you were already saved when you were baptized, right? you got to be honest with yourself. If you believed you were saved at the point of faith and when you were baptized, you weren't calling on the name of the Lord to be forgiven, you believed you already were forgiven. And you know, the Bible tells us in Psalm 145 and verse 18, the Lord's near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. And the, the true way to call upon Him for the forgiveness of sins is to call upon Him, appeal to Him, in the act of baptism. Remember Acts 22 and verse 16? What were you doing if you believed you were saved at the point of faith when you were baptized? I'll tell you what you were doing. You were calling on men to see an outward sign of an inward grace. I know that because I've had this discussion with countless denominational preachers. A lot of people have told me, well, Brett, I was baptized but it was an outward sign of an inward grace. What that means is it was a sign to everyone else of what God had already worked in me at the point of faith. Okay, so your baptism was merely a formality for the world to see it wasn't for you and God that's what that means outward sign of an inward grace you know Matthew chapter 15 and verse 9 says that in vain they worship me teaching his doctrine the commandments of men and when a person is baptized as an outward sign of an inward grace it's empty all you did was get wet because you didn't call on the name of the Lord you weren't appealing to God for forgiveness when you were baptized. And in verse 13, every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted will be rooted up. God didn't plant that idea of an outward sign of an inward grace. And I want to tell you something else. When you were baptized, you did not have faith in the working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. You know, that's what Colossians chapter 2 tells us in verses 11 and 12. He makes it very clear that in, in biblical baptism, when we're calling on the name of the Lord, He says there in Colossians 2 and in verse 12, "...buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead." In other words, when we're baptized, our faith is not in the water. You'll hear a lot of denominational people saying, you're putting your faith in the water, not by any means. My faith is not in the water, our faith is in the working of God, as we appeal to Him in that act, that obedient act of baptism. But if you believe that you were saved at the point of faith, There's no way that you had faith in the working of God in your obedience and baptism. You didn't believe God was raising you from the dead in baptism. You believed that He had done that at the point of faith. So when you were baptized, it was not through faith in the working of God. So what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, you were immersed in water. You say, but I was baptized. Baptized simply means to immerse. I mean, with two older brothers, I can't tell you how many times they immersed me in the creek. But it wasn't for the remission of sins. I was scared to death, but, you know, they'd dunk me under and watch the bubbles come up. There was only one time that I was immersed calling on the name of the Lord. And if you believe that you were saved at the point of faith when you accepted Jesus into your heart, you haven't done that yet. You have not called on the name of the Lord in baptism. And that means that you need to arise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on the name of the Lord tonight for the very first time. And everything's ready. You may be wrestling with what you see and what you want. You, you may be struggling. You, you see it, but, but you're, you, you're having a hard time being willing to do it. Friend, this, this is not about who's right and who's wrong. It's not about pride. We're simply going to the Word of God to see what did God say about it. Please, if you have not called on the name of the Lord according to the Scriptures, don't leave here without doing that. Everything's ready. We want to assist you. And we're pleading with you to come while we stand and sing the invitation song.